Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. I assure you, uh, the word idiot is a is a thoroughly biblical word. Yeah. In fact, uh, we're in the we're uh, in a series in the book of Galatians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a, a geographical region of churches in Galatia, modern day Turkey, and he had some pretty hard things to say to these people. Uh, in fact, this morning we're going to see uh, a good translation of the way he addresses these people that he loves so dearly is, Dear idiots, what's happened to you? And so we're in chapter 3 of Galatians this morning. We're making our way through this this book. Uh, and if you come there, you, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there with me, that's great. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. And it's also printed for you in the insert in your worship folder. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Let's read that together. O foolish Galatians, dear idiots. That's literally. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is God's word. Uh, The theme of this book of Galatians, put very simply, is the gospel and how All of Christian discipleship, all of living as a follower of Jesus is coming to an understanding of the gospel and then bringing our lives in line with the truth of that gospel. That's what we saw in chapter two. And here's what we've learned about the gospel so far, that the gospel is about being right with God. It's about our this this word we used last week. It's about our justification, that we're all guilty. Paul says no one is justified by works of the law, but everybody's trying to be. We're all trying to be. And what Paul is trying to get through to these people is, is you can't you can't make yourself right with God. You can't earn forgiveness for your sins through religious ceremony or observance. You can't qualify yourself for his love and acceptance by being good or moral or talented or committed. It doesn't work that way because we're not only guilty. What the scripture has to say to us is, is we're also broken. And so even if we do the right things, we do them with all the wrong motivations. So in Galatians, Paul's getting to the heart of what it means to be a Christian and what obedience looks like and how Christianity, here's, here's the important, how Christianity is different from religion. Because you see religion, here, here are the categories, religion, um, you know, whether it is radical Islam or fundamental Christianity, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Does that make sense, that flow? I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But Paul is coming and he's saying the gospel is the complete reverse. The gospel is a completely different message. The gospel is I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. And that makes all the difference in the world. 
<laughs> it really does. And that's what Paul's fleshing out here for us. And that, that difference, he's fleshing out that difference. So notice, it's not, now notice, it's not, I am accepted, so I don't have to obey. No, it's, the gospel is, I do nothing, I gain everything, I do anything. But what we've been seeing is that this, this idea of obedience that is just a religious observance, an obedience without experience of death and a resurrection, which we talked about last week, an attempt to justify ourselves by the works of the law really has at its root a selfish orientation. There's an outward moral conformity that is void of any inward grace. There's no there's all this religious activity, but but it's not done with any love, any joy, any peace, any patience, any kindness or gentleness. And that's the language Paul's getting at. If you look through this passage with me at a couple places in verse three, he says, um, are you he asks, are you being perfected in the flesh? And then again, in verses two and verse five, he talks about works of the law that, that have we received the spirit by the works of the law or in verse five, does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law? And that's this language of what it means to be. Uh, there's an obedience, but it's just a re, it's an outward religious conformity with no inward spiritual grace. And I came across a, a quote from a man named David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the to American Indians in the 18th century and a contemporary. Jonathan Edwards, and it's really long, and I'm probably going to lose you, um, but I, I have to I have to let you uh, hear this because it was so insightful to me. And he's writing in his journal. So this is David Brainerd writing to himself. And so just hang in there with me as best you can as I try to open this up to you because I just think there's so much in here that that is so good. He writes um, again, David Brainerd writing in his journal. When I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions. And I thought I must be very seriously religious. He says, though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserve nothing, yet I still, listen to this, I still harbored the secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. I thought that through my repenting and praising Him and seeking Him, I could make good steps toward heaven. When my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt that God would be affected by that and would hear my prayers for their sincerity. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. He goes on, he says, I told myself God must accept you because look how wholeheartedly you serve and seek him. Now, here is the problem. The more I tried to love God with all of my soul, the more I saw how little I really loved him. And one night, so he talks about one experience in particular. He says, one night. I remember when I was walking alone, I had I had opened such a view of my sin that I feared the ground would cleave asunder under my feet and become my grave. I saw it was impossible for me after the utmost pains to answer the demands of God's law. I saw it condemned me for selfish and angry and fearful and envious and lustful thoughts, which I could not possibly prevent. And then. After a considerable, considerable time in such distresses, one morning I was alone and I saw that all my contrivances and projects to effect or procure salvation were utterly in vain. And then I realized why. He says, then I realized why they were to no avail. He says, when I have been fasting, praying, obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory. To feel I was worthy. He says, as long as I was doing this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God. All for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior and to be my own Savior. 
I was worshiping him. I was not worshiping him, but using him. One more paragraph, he says, then at that time, the true way of salvation opened to my mind. I saw so much of its wisdom and suitableness and excellence that I wondered how I ever was blind to it. I wondered why everyone did not see this way of salvation, not by my own contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says, I felt myself in a new world and everything about me appeared with a different aspect from before. Now, you see, when you become a Christian, when you believe in Jesus, you we talked about this last week, you believe into him, you're united with him. And so part of what David Brainerd's talking about there, part of the change that he's describing for us is that when we believe into Jesus, we believe into him. And so in his death and resurrection, there is a subjective, personal death and resurrection that takes place. There is a new love that is born in you and I. There's a new power for obedience. What we said last week, again, is the gospel is not about bad people becoming good people. It's about the dead being raised to life. And so John, in 1 John 3, which we read just a few minutes ago, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life. Do you hear that? We know this is what's happened. This is what it means to be a Christian. We've passed from death to life. And we know this is true. How? Because we love. And you see, see now, there's a, now there's a new obedience. Now it's just not outward moral conformity. It's, it's something that's coming from the wellsprings of my heart. It's from the inside. And it's not just selfishly oriented. It's not about building a record for myself. It really is about the love and the glory of God and the love of other people. That there's this radical change that has taken place. And that's what we need to talk about this morning. And we're going to talk about it by just using this phrase that there is in the gospel at work in those who believe in Jesus, a spiritual power. This passage is about spiritual power. And there are three things that I want us to see. Just really three things. First, what is it? You know, the spiritual power that is ours that explains this radical change that David Brainerd is describing in his life that we've been talking about. The difference between obeying to earn myself a place in God's in God's, you know, in favor and acceptance and knowing uh, that I'm accepted and moving out in obedience. There's a spiritual power. Three things. First, what is it? Secondly, how do we get it? And thirdly, how do we progress or how do we grow in it? So what is it? How do we get it? How do we progress in it? Those are the three points in your outline and in your little insert there. And we'll walk through those things together, beginning with this. First, what is the spiritual power? Okay. now, Paul says that if you're a Christian, there's a spiritual power at work in you. And the word he literally uses, if you look down in verse five, he says to see you supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you. And that that phrase there, work miracles, is the Greek word dunamis, which means dynamite. It means spiritual dynamite. And Paul says that, or excuse me, Jesus says it in Acts verse, ch- chapter 1, verse 8 this way. He says to the church, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in all the earth. And the, the word there, power, is the same word. It's the word dunamis or dynamite. Now, Paul says the Galatians have received the Spirit. They've begun in the Spirit and that the Spirit in their lives is like a spiritual dynamite. And I have a confession to make. Uh, and, and it's not very manly, so I'm very ashamed. And it, I'm scared to death of firecrackers and fireworks. I know my kids, you know, are missing out on all the fun of the Fourth of July. I let all the other men in the crowd, you know, do that thing. I've heard too many stories of people getting their fingers taken off or whatever. I'm just scared. I'm a wimp. I'm a sissy. I confess that. But um, <laughs> but one of the things I remember, and part of it, this may have something to do with that, because I remember when I was in middle school. Middle schoolers can get in all kinds of trouble. Um, but when I was in middle school, somehow some of my friends, and I forget what they were called, but, but basically came across a quarter stick of dynamite 
you know, whatever that is, M80s or M40s or whatever they are. And so my friend and I, we had this great idea. Uh, he had a two-story dock. He lived on Lake Eloise, and I could just walk over to his house, and we thought, and, and we were always captivated. We'd get up on that dock, and we'd see the little garfish, like, swimming in the shallows, and we'd take, like, you know, guns and try to shoot them and do all kinds of, we thought, you know what? Uh, we know how to get those things. So we took that, we took those quarter sticks of dynamite up on the dock, lit them up, dropped them in the water. <laughs> Pretty soon, bloop, 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 bloop. the fish would just start floating around. You can't eat them or anything. It's just cool to kill things when you're 12 years old, I guess. But I, I, I it's so vivid in my mind because I can remember being on top of that two-story, you know, dock and, and the spray of water and the power of that, you know, Boom! You know, you feel like Tim Allen or whatever it is, you know. I mean, that's like manly. That's cool. But I was scared to death and I didn't let my friend know it. But but do you, you see Paul saying it's a crude analogy, but Paul's saying that when you become a Christian, there is a spiritual explosion that happens in your life. I mean, if you can bring to your mind the pictures that you've seen on the television of, of you know, sports stadiums or big buildings being demolished. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that when, when, when that's what happens to you when you become a Christian. One life is completely destroyed and he begins to remake you. And, and, and this is what it means that the Spirit is coming. Now, I have to be honest with you and admit that this is a weak point for our theology as a denomination. The confession of faith, that if you can imagine this, the confession of faith that we ascribe to has no chapter on the Holy Spirit. Uh, the pastors in our and there there are five or six churches in our denomination here in Polk County, and every week all the pastors get together and we're all preaching on the same text in all the different churches. It's kind of cool, and so every week it's like this spirited. Oh, but what do you think about you know we got together this week to talk about the spirit and everybody kind of looked at one another. It was very awkward. Am I lying? Amen. John this says amen. It's like not really. I mean, this is a, this is a huge weak point for us theologically, and so. We need to really spend some time here and make sense of this stuff. So let's see what's going on here. What, 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 is, what is this? Who is this spirit that Paul is talking about when the Galatians coming into the... And, and whenever, the, whenever the scripture talks about the Holy Spirit, I want to say it's, it's not talking about an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory. And when Jesus talks to his disciples about the coming of the Spirit... He always, and if you caught it in 1 John 3, he always uses words that express a personal relationship or a communion. So in your assurance of pardon, he says God abides in us and we abide in him through the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that blows my mind every time I read it in the Gospel of John is when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you know, something really big is about to happen. They're going to come and they're going to get me and I'm going to have to leave you, but it's going to be for your good that I go away. Now, I can imagine those guys thinking, how, how's that possible? But what Jesus says is, he says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send the spirit to you. The gospel is the good news, not only that Jesus died for our sins, was in the grave for three days, rose again. The gospel is that at the end of the gospel of Matthew, he ascended into heaven to go to the right hand of God the Father where he came from. And from there, he has sent the Spirit to be upon the church. Thank you. That's the good news. We believe that. 
Can I get an amen on that too? Okay, thank you. I need that, okay? I need you to believe that. We believe that. So, now, Jesus says it's for your advantage that I go away. Now, how can that be? And I want to say it this way, that Jesus, uh, Jesus, when he was here on the earth with his disciples, he was with them, but when the Spirit comes, he's in them. Jesus can be with us. But through the Spirit, He is in us. And so the promise of Ezekiel there that we read a little while ago is that the Spirit, and this, is, this blows my mind, that the Spirit of God, who at the very beginning of time, in the first pages of Genesis, hovered over the waters to create the heavens and the earth, that same Spirit now hovers in our hearts, recreating us, taking our hearts of stone into His hands and massaging them until the blood begins to flow and they begin to beat in obedience. He says, I will cause you I'll put my spirit in you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. I mean, this is what we need. That's what we need. That's the spiritual power that we need in our marriages and in raising our children and in trying to befriend one another and loving one another. This is what we need. The spirit in us, animating our lives, causing us to obey, compelling us and forcefully pushing us towards obedience. The spiritual power, the spiritual dynamite that is accessible to us because the Spirit has come. That's what we need. So, two applications, and you'll see them there in your outline. The application number one is, have you considered what, or better said, who you have? The one who spoke stars into existence lives in you if your faith is in Jesus. Does your life explain that reality? We consider that. And then application number two, um, commit yourself to the means of grace. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? And I want to wholeheartedly affirm that we believe God still works miracles. We believe he heals people physically and emotionally. We believe he can heal any marriage and any relationship. We believe that Jesus' miracles, and I want to say it very, that Jesus' miracles were not suspensions of the natural order. They were the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural and broken and demonized and wounded. We believe that. And cynicism is contrary to the truth of the gospel because God has sent his spirit to be powerfully at work in us and through us in our city and the world. There is no life. There's no marriage, there's no social structure, there's no political entity, there's no kingdom on this earth that he can't change. Every conversion that we experience in this church is a miracle of God's grace. Now, having said that, I want to say to you, it is a dangerous error to think that the Spirit only comes through extraordinary or ecstatic spiritual experiences. The Scripture is very clear. Scripture is very clear that the spiritual power that we're being called to here comes from those things, but more fundamentally from a daily communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through what we call the ordinary means of grace. Jesus tells us to abide in him and to abide in his word. And if we do this, that will bear much fruit. I'm, you know, I'm on a weight loss project. How foolish would it be of me to say, you know, I'm going to lose weight, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to work out and I'm not going to change the way I eat. How successful am I going to be? Hello? Not very. You know, I need a bath. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my soap and I'm going to go outside and say, "Okay, God, bring the rain. 
better strategy is hop in the shower. And what I'm trying to say is, 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 is this spiritual power that is available to us, there are ways that God has already said, he's already said, here are the ways that this comes into your life. Here are the means that if you give yourself to, they will be the means by which you daily tap into the power of the Spirit in communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture reading, prayer, being with other Christians, meditation, all of these things that he has given us. And I just want to say that the spiritual power, it doesn't come through these disciplines, but they are the things that create the right heart condition in us that produce the fertile soil through which the spirit can come and work. And so if we want to be a people of great spiritual power, we need to pray like crazy that God would bring miracles among us and we need to give ourselves diligently to the means of grace through which the spirit works. At the same time, praying that the spiritual power that he calls us to here would come. So that's the spiritual power. Now, that's what it is. But how do you get it? And let's look at that here from this passage. And these are the rhetorical questions that Paul asks here. He does it twice. Okay, he does it twice in verse two. And then again, in verse five, he says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And again, verse five, does the one who supplies the spirit to you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? And so, again, we have these two categories that Paul's been pressing to this point. Is it through good works and religious observance that the spirit comes or through faith? And Paul uses an important phrase. He says, it's the same paradigm he's been using. He says, look at verse 3 really carefully with me. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now that word translated perfected, it's a great word, but it literally means to complete. It means to complete. If you remember the story that we told last week, and if you're not a Christian and you're not familiar with the Bible, one of the great stories Uh, of our faith is a story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis where they sinned against God. They ate the fruit of the tree he told them not to. And there's a point in the story where it says that they were naked. They realized they were naked. And they were ashamed. They felt incomplete. They felt they needed to do something to cover themselves. They knew that as they were, they were unacceptable. and, And so they hid. And what the Bible says is they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover themselves, to try to complete themselves. And Paul's warning us against finishing this sentence. If only I had. I remember when Isaac was very little. (laughs) Um, Isaac, Isaac, my six-year-old, has always been our loner. And he he was one day he was in the back of the house and he was working on something very important. And uh, we were standing in the kitchen and we heard him yell from the house, "Mommy, come help me do this all by myself." I thought, like father, like son. That we're all consumed with self-salvation projects. We're all glad to have Jesus come and help us do it all by ourselves so that we can still take the credit. The church is full of pretty, wealthy, moral, nice, thin, servant-oriented people void of any authentic spiritual power. And the reason for that is that self-reliance and spiritual power are mutually exclusive in the Bible. And if we don't renounce the instinct in all of us to work salvation for ourselves, to complete ourselves with all the projects that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, we will not live in the power of the Spirit. Spiritual power doesn't come through works of the law. That's what Paul says. It comes through faith, which is the opposite, the very opposite of self-reliance. And twice he describes Christians in this passage. In verse 7, 
in verse 9, as of faith. And in the original language, it means defining characteristic. And so defining faith, if you look at verse 2, defining faith is just the opposite of what it's contrasted to. Faith is stopping works of the law. Faith is the opposite of relying on the works of the law in Galatians 3.11. Faith is to stop trying to complete ourselves through our own efforts. It's opposed to arrogance and pride and boasting, and it assumes a posture of humility, of poverty of spirit. It is the word in the Bible that expresses human impossibility. See, as long as I can do it, as long as my strength is sufficient, then it's not faith. But the moment, the moment my needs go beyond my ability to meet my needs, that's when it becomes faith. And the person who is of faith is the person who says, I can't do it, and then looks to God to supply what he lacks. So to help us understand what he means by faith, Paul goes back to the Old Testament and he picks up the character. If you look there in verse 6, he says, just like Abraham. He picks up this character of Abraham. And not, I don't want to assume that you're, that you're familiar with all of those stories in the Old Testament, but the story of, of the man Abraham in the Old Testament was God came to this man and he said, Abraham, I'm going to do great things in your life. I'm going to, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use the son who comes from you and I'm going to form from that son a nation. And that nation of people are going to take my my salvation and my healing and my blessing to the ends of the earth. One problem. Abraham was old as dirt. And his wife couldn't have kids. She was barren. And just to prove the point, God waits something like 30 years until she's way past the age where she can, by any natural concept, have children. And he keeps saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. And Abraham messes up. He says, you know what? I don't know if God's going to come through, so I better take it upon myself. And he marries another woman, and he, ha- and he has a child with her. And he says, God, why can't this child be the child you're talking about? And God continues to insist, no, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. Apart from any strength you have in yourself. And, and then finally, when he's like 100 years old, and his wife's like that old, they have a kid. Through the power of God, in a miraculous way, they have a child, and that child is the one that God has promised. And all along, Abraham, he flounders, he falters, but he, he remains a man of faith. And, in, and in, here in verse 6, uh, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 15 when God is saying this to Abraham, Abraham, look at the stars. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. And though his wife was barren and though he was old as dirt, Abraham believed that God would do, apart from any way he had of making it come to pass himself, that God would do what he had promised. And what what Paul says here is when Abraham believed, it was counted to him. That faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was not able to do it on his own. He had nothing to recommend himself to God. He wasn't circumcised. Remember, we've been talking about that. He, he didn't obey the clean laws because they haven't been given yet. And yet he believed. And just in that belief, he was counted. Now, pay attention to that word. He was counted righteous. Paul's saying that righteousness was imputed to him. It was credited to him. Abraham wasn't righteous, but he believed. And so he was counted righteous. Abraham wasn't complete. He didn't have a son. He was old and his wife was barren, but he believed and God completed him through the power of his spirit. He gave him a son so that the promise he might he made might be fulfilled. And and so if you're seeking to complete yourself. Then you're not a child of Abraham. Because the children of Abraham were told very clearly in verse seven and verse nine are those who are of faith and faith is turning away from all the ways I'm trying to commend myself to God and to trust him to supply what I cannot provide for myself and to rest 
to rest in him alone. It's, it's, the, it's the exact, Maddie pointed out, um, this little, there's a neat little quote over here. Uh, what is it? A, a Yiddish proverb. If you want your dreams to come true, then don't sleep. You hear it? Don't rest. Get busy. You've got a lot of work to do. See, faith is the exact opposite. Faith is coming humbly, accepting that we cannot make ourselves worthy, coming humbly to him with nothing and asking him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I've said it over and over again. The only thing you need to be a Christian is nothing, but it's the one thing nobody has. All you need is nothing. You see, that's when the spirit comes. That's when the dynamite comes, when you have nothing. That's how you become a Christian. There's this old hymn. It goes like this. It says, weary, working, burden one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. Now, here's the danger. And the danger is, Paul says in verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The danger is to think that we that the way we become a Christian differs from the way we grow in faith. That we, we don't start with faith and then progress in holiness by trying hard. Spiritual power comes into your life when you believe the truth of the gospel and you grow in that spiritual power, not as you get out there and work your rear end off to get it done, but as you believe the truth of the gospel. The more you grow in the reality of the truth of the gospel, the more you'll come to know the spiritual power that is yours by the spirit. It's not faith, then hard work. It's believing the gospel, then believing it more and more and more. Remember drawing out the lines of the gospel, the lines the gospel sends out in our lives and bring our lives in congruence with the gospel's truth. You grow in spiritual power the same way you receive spiritual power through faith, not works of the law. Working hard only reinforces self-reliance, which drains your life of spiritual power, the spiritual dynamite of the spirit. So how do we turn from works of the law to faith? That's the last question as we come to a close. Remember, religion is the default of the human heart. We're all trying to complete ourselves. We're constantly moving off the truth of the gospel to try to be perfected by the flesh. And the solution, Paul says, if you look there in verse two, excuse me, verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You see, the solution is to see Jesus crucified. The, the solution, remember we've talked about this, the solution is to be a people who commit to this in one another's lives, to beat one another with the gospel day after day after day, the way Martin Luther said we should. It's to see that Jesus had to die to save us, and that should really humble us, shouldn't it? Because we really are that offensive that even our righteous acts are filthy rags before him. And so he had to die, but that he was willing to die and how that secures us, that he would love us and give himself for us in that way. But the, the key phrase, how this comes home to our hearts, the key phrase is there in verse two. I just read it. He says it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. Now, what does Paul mean by that? That word translated publicly portrayed is clearly portrayed in the NIV, if you have that translation, but it's one word in the original language. And it's interesting. It's the word from which we get our English word graphic. So it's probably best to say, Paul's saying here, Jesus was graphically presented as crucified. He was vividly or clearly or powerfully presented to the Galatians. Now, Paul's saying, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying it's possible to read the Bible when it talks about Jesus' death 
and to not really be moved by it. He's saying there's a difference between having a theoretical understanding of the gospel and to see it. To see it. And that's what Paul means when he says, before your eyes. I mean, the Galatians weren't there in, in Jerusalem that day when Jesus hung on the cross. So what does he mean? He mean, They didn't literally see the crucifixion, but in Paul, he means, in Paul's preaching, it was so tangible, so real, so graphic, and so vivid that it came home to their hearts. Now, no pressure, you know. In Paul's preaching, it was that tangible, that vivid, that clear. But that's really the goal. The goal, I heard a friend of mine say one time, you know, you haven't been to church. You know, I, he was talking about Baptist churches, and this is not a slam on Baptist. But, you know, you haven't been to church unless you leave, leave feeling beat up. And that's how you know you had church. You know, the goal is not that you would leave here full of a sense of self-loathing and condemnation. The goal is not that you would be guilty and that through your guilt, you would go out there and you would do the things we're asking you to do. The goal is not to make you afraid and then prey on your fear to get you to do all the, the maniacal plans that we have. The goal is that when we preach and when we pray and when we sing and when we worship, that the, the Jesus Christ crucified would be so tangible, so real, so graphic, so vivid that you would see it and it would come home to your hearts. Jonathan Edwards, this great Puritan theologian, he said there's a difference between the knowledge of something that is just theoretical, and then the knowledge that consists in what he called, his phrase is, the sense on the heart. And now he writes this as we come to the end this morning. He says there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. He says there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. There's a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. He says the former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. It's, there's one, it's one thing to say, honey's sweet. It's another thing to have tasted honey. Uh, my favorite fruit in all of the world is a fruit that grow. I thought it only grew in India, but we went to Africa last summer, and they had it in Africa. It was really cool. It's a fruit called jackfruit. Anybody ever tasted jackfruit? It, it is. It is this, Jonathan has, and he thought it was disgusting. But it is the sweetest, it's the sweetest fruit I've ever tasted. And, and it, so I could say, you know, listen, you've got to try Jack. And you might agree with me, jackfruit really is sweet. It's one thing to say, hey, jackfruit's sweet. It's another thing to say, man, I've tried that. It is sweet. It's sickeningly sweet. I mean, do you see the difference? And we can sit around and talk, oh, Jesus is great. You know, wow, the gospel is amazing. There's a difference between having a theoretical knowledge of the gospel and its beauty and its greatness and having tasted it, of having it come home, of having seen it with our eyes. And so... I have to ask you this morning, do you have an opinion about the gospel? Is what you know about Jesus hearsay or is it, is it just theoretical or does it really make, you know, an emotional difference in your life? Have you gazed on Jesus? Has he been vividly portrayed to you? Have you seen him? It's one thing. It's one thing to be able to explain the doctrine of justification. It's another thing to have tasted it and delighted in it and it coming home to your heart. Is the gospel sweet? That's the test. Does it move you? Have it seen him? Have you seen him? I mean, do you remember the first time you saw Mel Gibson's The Passion? I mean, why was that so powerful? Because it's one thing to read about it, you know, in a, in, in a page, in a book. It's another thing to say, wow. I mean, the only when it's that graphic will it begin to move you off of your own efforts to faith. It has to be that real and that vivid. You've got to have... That experience where you come face to face with the gospel and your heart just melts. 
when you come, and that gives you the, it gives you the freedom to come and say, I, I don't have to complete myself, and to come and say, Jesus, all I have is nothing. But you are everything. You see, seeing Jesus Christ crucified is the only way we can ever come before him, not trying to complete ourselves through works of the law, but we can come before him, laying our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, only then to stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. So let's pray that together this morning. I can only pray, Father, that as I, uh, just foolish me, stood up here to talk this morning, in the limited uh, reality of, of a man's words, that somehow, by the work of the Spirit, that you could be miraculously and powerfully at work among us to, to vividly and clearly portray Jesus before our spiritual eyes, that we would see him, and that in seeing him, we would learn to rejoice and to rest and to glory in him and him alone and not our own doing, not our own deadly doing. Father, we repent of not only our sins, but of our righteousness that we are so apt to try to win for ourselves a place in your, your courtroom to win acceptance and, and love and glory for ourselves instead of stopping all of that and resting in Jesus Christ alone. Oh, Father, come and by the power of your spirit, work into our hearts the joy that belongs to only those who've seen Jesus, who've laid their deadly doing down at his feet and have rested and rejoice in him and him alone. So come and do that among us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Oh, man, my favorite line in that song. If your faith is in Jesus and that means if you've laid your deadly doing down, down at his feet, uh, then as you go. There is no there is no question you rest beneath the father's smile. And that's the promise that's contained in the benediction that we speak over you every week, that as you go, you go not trying to work it out, trying to figure out how to make yourself right. He has made you right by your faith in Jesus and by Jesus's work alone. And now he sends you out in all that you do to rest beneath his smile to receive the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.